and investigation sets the stage for an historic vote at the Capitol. Authorize the filing of articles of impeachment against Attorney General Ken Paxton. So how did we get here, and what's the political impact of Republicans taking on a powerful leader in their own party? We take a closer look. Plus, the effort to expand availability of medical cannabis falls short at the Texas Capitol, how that's affecting people seeking treatment. And he was the only Texas Republican congressman to vote yes on a gun bill after Uvalde. We have to move the ball forward. Uh, enough with the, the finger pointing, enough with these um, these dug-in, uh, entrenched positions. One year later, why he says he'd do it again, despite tough criticism. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Josh Hinkle. Memorial Day weekend is traditionally one of the busiest times of the legislative session. This year, it's even more intense, with the House weighing impeachment for Attorney General Ken Paxton. If you're watching this program, you've probably just watched a newscast with the latest developments, but we're going to take a deeper dive. Paxton has faced accusations for years. Still, he stayed popular with voters. We'll look closer at the reasons why and how that could affect what happens next and the impact of the move by Republican lawmakers to move forward with impeachment of an influential leader in their own party. For Insight, we bring in Capitol reporter Ryan Chandler. You've been covering this story for a while. State leaders have known about these accusations against Paxton for years. Why now to bring up impeachment? Josh, that is the golden question that is on everybody's minds inside the Texas Capitol right now. Because you're right, for many of these accusations, they're not new. Attorney General Ken Paxton has been under felony indictment for two counts of securities fraud since 2015, the entire time he's been in office. The whistleblower allegations go back to 2020. But what is different this session is the Attorney General requested $3.3 million to settle uh, the, that whistleblower lawsuit. That's public money. That is, that is not something that he can approve himself. The legislature has to give their seal of approval. And from our reporting, it shows they, uh, they were skeptical of, of just rubber stamping that uh, expenditure. They wanted to look in more into why we should be using taxpayer dollars to settle a lawsuit that came from alleged improprieties from our state's top law enforcement official. And uh, it seems like they uncovered more than they intended to. So we know Paxton is a Republican, and so is the leader of the investigative committee, and of course mm -hmm. the House Speaker is too. What's the larger picture here with Republicans investigating a powerful leader in their own party? You know, all session we've seen infighting within the Republican Party. Um, and I think that just speaks to the, the diversity of Texas Republicans. You know, Texas is a massive state. A Republican out of Houston may be very different than a Republican out of Lubbock. And we've seen that rear its head through policy debates, whether it's education or property taxes. The two chambers don't always get along, even though they are dominated by Republicans. But what we've been hearing is that with Ken Paxton in particular, it's, it's just reached a point where his long history of legal troubles um, have led some Republicans to believe he is a drag on the party, um, a, a drag on their brand. And uh, I think uh, they believe it's time for new leadership. Yeah, looking down the road, this could lead to a special election to replace the attorney general. What yeah. are you hearing about how people who, about people who, that could throw their hat in the ring? So if the Senate does convict the Attorney General, that leaves an open seat in one of the most powerful posts in Texas. So I predict that is going to yield a, a crowded field of Republican challengers. You could look uh, 
many different places for that. The, the first thing that comes to mind is the Texas Senate. There are a lot of senior Republicans uh, who do practice law there um, who, who may want to throw their hat in the ring. Keep in mind, if you're a, a, a senior senator in Texas and you want to move up to statewide office, um, it, it would be very convenient for the attorney general to have an open uh, seat because there, there isn't many more places to go. But then you look at the, the competitive primary that Ken Paxton won out in the last election cycle. You have George P. Bush, the former land commissioner, who may want to throw his hat back in the ring. You have Ava Guzman, uh, who, who had a, a very important position leading the investigation into the Uvalde school shooting, former Supreme Court justice. Um, she, could, she could be a challenger, but um, it's, it's going to be a, a, a contested election for sure. All right, still a lot to break down. Thank you very much, Ryan. Josh, thanks. Paxton supporters say his election success is one of the reasons he should not be removed from office. They point out that he won re-election even though voters knew about the accusations against him. The voters have rejected these smears. They've rejected these attacks. And this committee is trying to undermine the will of the voters. It is true that Texas voters have shown strong support for Paxton. For example, Paxton faced a tough field in last year's Republican primary. Land Commissioner George P. Bush, former Texas Supreme Court Justice Eva Guzman, and Congressman Louis Gohmert all raised questions about the accusations against Paxton, but they didn't seem to matter to voters. Just before the March 2022 primary, our Emerson College poll asked what people thought about Paxton's indictment. More than 40% said it had no impact on their vote. Nearly a quarter said it actually made them more likely to vote for Paxton. The race went to a runoff, but as you can see from the results, he had a solid lead over everyone in the field, and Paxton won the runoff against Bush by a more than two to one margin. And he went on to an easy victory in last November's general election. Paxton beat Democrat Rochelle Garza by more than 800,000 votes. So why is Paxton so popular, despite all the accusations against him? One reason is that he has continually sued the Biden administration and continually reminded people he has. That's helped endear him to Republican voters. We typed in the phrase, sues Biden, into the search bar on the Texas Attorney General's website. It returned more than 60 resulting news releases. The most recent one was just this week, suing over the new CBP-1 app. It is supposed to help Customs and Border Protection streamline the process of migrants applying for asylum and help out Homeland Security on the border. Paxton's office argues the app does not verify a migrant would qualify for an exception. He also sued against vaccine mandates for private businesses connected to the pandemic, as well as for Texas National Guard troops. He even sued back in February, claiming a $1.7 trillion spending bill was unconstitutional because of House members voting by proxy. Uvalde, one year later, families of the victims step up to fight for changing gun laws. We look at where they succeeded and why they're still pushing for change. Bills to fight the state's fentanyl problem advanced to the governor's desk. We meet one mother who took her grief and turned it into action. Governor Greg Abbott named fentanyl as one of his emergency items this legislative session. Now a number of bills related to dealing with the deadly opioid are awaiting his signature. Our Will Dupree talked to one mother who turned heartbreak into action. What do you got? Some cookies. 
Stephanie Turner made a delivery to thank a lawmaker who helped carry through a bill named after her son, Tucker, who died in 2021 from a fentanyl overdose. When I describe Tucker, I say he's bigger than this earth, and he sure, he sure is, and he's continuing to be. The bill, called Tucker's Law, requires every school district in Texas to teach students each year about preventing fentanyl abuse and making them aware of its deadly effects. I know that if my son had this information when he was first offered a Xanax pill, he would be here today. The governor could now sign that legislation into law, along with another bill sponsored in the House by Representative James Tallarico. Our legislation is one step toward addressing those teen fentanyl overdoses. His bill directs districts to keep the opioid overdose medication Narcan on hand in case of emergencies. This, I think, is tangible action that we're taking to help address this crisis. A bill that went nowhere this session would have legalized fentanyl testing strips. It's something the Travis County judge hoped would gain some traction. Every Democrat, Republican that I have talked to that actually deals with this crisis on a local level is in favor of legalizing it because we're seeing how many people are dying of all ages, of all backgrounds. State lawmakers could take it up again two years from now, but in the meantime. This is a picture, a portrait of my son. Turner is thinking about the impact Tucker will make. I am grateful that his life, his name will save others, and I know that he would be proud to know that and to be a part of that and to help others. Will Dupree, State of Texas. A number of other bills associated with fentanyl made their way to the governor's desk this legislative session. House Bill 6 would require that murder charges be brought in cases of fentanyl poisoning. Also on the governor's desk is House Bill 3144, which would designate October as Fentanyl Poisoning Awareness Month. Those hoping for an expansion of medical cannabis here in Texas will have to wait until next session. Why it won't be reaching the governor's desk. The mass shooting in Uvalde pushed Congress to pass gun safety measures, but did they do enough? I'm less focused on the things that can't get done, and I'm more focused on the things that can get done. I think there's a lot of opportunities there uh, that, that we can continue to build on. We interview Congressman Tony Gonzalez about what changed and what still needs to be done in the year since Uvalde. Families of victims and survivors of the mass shooting in Uvalde have been coming to the state capitol regularly this session. They've called for tighter gun laws, but with little success. Wednesday marked one year since 19 children and two teachers died at Robb Elementary. That date is bringing new attention to changes made and not made after the tragedy. Our Monica Madden takes a closer look at gun laws after Uvalde. I want to honor her life legacy with action. Parents Kim and Felix Rubio never imagined becoming activists. He was perfectly content with just being a mom of five children in a small town. Their contentedness ripped away by an 18-year-old gunman who killed their youngest daughter, Lexi. Last year? One year ago at Robb Elementary School. Lexi didn't deserve this. None of those children did. Those two teachers didn't. In the last year, pain has fueled their fight. At the nation's capital, pleas and protests from Uvalde families helped push rare federal action on gun laws. This effort was about the art of the possible. Senator John Cornyn led the passage of the Safer Communities Act. It created a seven-day review process for the FBI to check firearm purchases for those under the age of 21 and clarified requirements for federally licensed firearm dealers. 
We've seen a 52% increase in federal prosecutions for unlicensed firearms dealers. Is there more to be done? As policymakers, we ought to always be open to suggestions that uh, people have about how to make it, how to save lives. Republicans like Cornyn have expressed there is a line. We haven't figured out how to stop all of them, um, but I'm, I'm confident that the answer is not uh, to deprive law-abiding gun owners of their constitutional right to keep and bear arms. Loose gun laws have allowed guns to proliferate to anybody and everybody. State Senator Roland Gutierrez, a Democrat who represents well, Uvalde, no, no. wants a different approach. We have to start looking at the common denominator, which is too many guns in too many wrong hands. Holding regular press conferences with Uvalde families, he made guns his top issue this session. Yeah, I've been all about this session about protecting children, my friend, and we haven't done a whole lot of protecting the children when it comes to guns and ammunition. A doomed effort from the start with strong opposition in a Republican-dominated state. They didn't shatter any expectations for me. I pretty much knew what we were looking at going into this thing, but I felt like we needed to have the discussion. None of his bills got a hearing, but in the House, the bill proposing to raise the age limit for purchasing semi-automatic weapons advanced out of committee. Two Republicans voted yes just days after another mass shooting in Allen. It's a reminder that change is possible to see some sort of progress. It meant the world to me. While that bill never got a floor vote, next time around we'll be better prepared. Families like the Rubios are not giving up. We'll get what we wanted, but we still won't have Lexi. And that was that was hard. That'll that'll be a hard day. Monica Madden, State of Texas. Congressman Tony Gonzalez represents Uvalde in Washington. He was the only Texas Republican to vote for the Safer Communities Act. Monica spoke with the congressman about the backlash he still faces after voting for gun legislation. I want to ask you to reflect on the Safer Communities Act that was passed in the wake of the mass shooting in Uvalde. Of course, in the aftermath and the year since then, we have seen countless other mass shootings. Do you think there is still more work to be done on that aspect? Yeah, I was I was very I was very proud to work on the uh, bipartisan Safer Community Act and to get that over the finish line. It was the first piece of legislation uh, of that type in, in over in over three decades. But it was only the start. There's a lot more we have to do. There's a lot more that uh, that still needs to happen. You're seeing it every day. Um, as far as these the school violence that is that is throughout the country, uh, one of the things that you see in, in Congress is we pass these pieces of legislation and we're very quickly we're very quick to pat ourselves on the back. I just did it 10 seconds ago. But uh, part of it is that that uh, we have to bring those dollars from Washington back to Texas until those dollars are in our schools, they don't exist. It might as well that piece of legislation not exist. And that's been the next phase, if you will. Uh, after the safe, after the passing of the Safer's Community Act, is to go. What what now? A big part of that is to get ahead of the problem. How do you identify a problem? You know, with a child years in advance. And so uh, I've been working with the um, with the Department of Justice to do just that. Bring those dollars back home. Um, you know, also in the aftermath of passing that act, you expressed. It, not necessarily openness, but we're on the fence about a measure that we've seen the families really call for, and that's to raise the age limit needed to purchase a semi-automatic weapon from 18 to 21. You said that at the time that you wanted to wait and see the effects of the Safer Communities Act. I'm curious where you stand on that specific call one year later. You know, since the Safer Community Act has been signed into law, there's been at least 160 cases in which a minor that uh, should not have 
uh, purchased a firearm was was stopped. And I think that's a success. I think we have to build on that. Uh, a lot of times folks want to go to the end of the problem and talk about age limits or or uh, uh, weapons bans or these other different things. Politically, that can't get done right now. Uh, and so I, I'm less focused on the things that can't get done, and I'm more focused on the things that can get done. Uh, mental health is a big part of it, but there has to be beyond mental health. There has to be other measures. Speaking to the political fallout that we saw in the aftermath of Uvalde, specifically, too, after the Safer Communities Act was passed, you were one of the uh, handful of Republicans who crossed over to vote in favor of that and ended up getting censured by two GOP parties in your district partially for that. There was, of course, another vote. But I'm curious, you know, do you still view it as that was worth it? And would you vote for it again if it were in front of your desk today? I, I voted in favor of the uh, Safer's Community Act uh, for, for a couple of reasons. But the main one was if that bill was law, it would have prevented the Uvalde shooting. That is more than enough for me to take any arrows from anyone in my party. Yes, I got censured by the Republican Party of Texas for it, but oh well, you know, it's the right thing to do. I spent 20 years in the military, five years in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I always do what I think is right, uh, regardless of of, uh, of what I'm up against. And, and honestly, I think Texans agree. We need to take care of our kids. Everyone is anxious about what is happening in the world right now, whether it's in school or elsewhere. But I mean, children deserve the right to feel safe at school. You know, when, when I was a child, uh, school was my sanctuary. I spent I spent time at a battered women's shelter in, in San Antonio. So home was was a, a very chaotic environment. School was where I went to to seek refuge. That, 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 that can't change. School has to be a safe space where people can come and, and grow and develop and, 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 and smile, if you will. And so, uh, yes, uh, you know, I took some I took some flack for voting for the Safest Community Act. I was only one of 14 Republicans, the only Republican in Texas. But if that were if that vote were today, I would vote the exact same way. I think it's important that we take care of school, uh, take care of our children in schools. And once again, this is only the start. The bipartisan Safer's Community Act was only the start. We have to do more. Part of that is delivering the resources back home. But we honestly, we have to have a, a frank conversation. Let's uh, and that, that's a big part of this uh, bipartisan uh, uh, safer schools and safety caucus is, hey, come to the table, let's sit down, let's have real conversations, maybe uncomfortable conversations, but let's sit down and have real fruitful conversations and figure out what can get done politically here in Washington. You heard Gonzalez mention the Bipartisan School Safety and Security Caucus. He announced the formation of that caucus this past Monday. Gonzalez teamed up with Democrat Jared Moskowitz from Florida. He represents Parkland, Florida, where a school shooting in 2018 killed 17 students. The caucus aims to work across party lines on solutions to improve school safety. A bill to expand medical cannabis in Texas has officially gone up in smoke. What it would have changed and why proponents think it's necessary. Legislation that aims to expand Texas patients' access to medical cannabis failed to pass this session after missing a key legislative deadline. This despite the House passing a bill last month with wide bipartisan support to allow Texans living with chronic pain to get prescriptions for low THC edible cannabis. Currently, Texans with cancer, PTSD, 
epilepsy and other chronic conditions are eligible, the legislation would have expanded that to a longer list of debilitating illnesses. Some Texans currently benefiting from their prescription urged lawmakers to act. I was in an unbearable pain, and by the time I got it, got home and got it, and then got the dosage in me, another 45 minutes to an hour, and I could feel all that pain going away. And I was like, what? That's how urgent it is. There's people out there right now in worse condition than I am that need it. It can make a difference in their life within one hour. After passing the House, the bill got stuck in a Senate committee. That committee's chairman, Lubbock Republican Senator Charles Perry, has supported the measure in the past. He tells us he hopes the lieutenant governor gives the Senate an interim charge to consider the measure. Governor Abbott signed a bill to expand access to the state's Crime Victims Compensation Fund and increase payouts for certain claims. The law takes effect September 1st. It widens eligibility for household members of victims, increases relocation compensation, and increases lost wages for family members of deceased victims and more. We investigated problems with the program last year and found several employees said they were overworked and the program was understaffed, struggling to pay claims fast enough. Records from the Attorney General's office show it now takes an average six months for victims to receive a first payment on a claim. The program paid more than $71 million to crime victims last year. Thank you again for joining us for State of Texas. I'm Josh Hinkle. We'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.